0: What's up, guys? It's your girl, Ginger, the true crime queen. I'm reminding you now that listener discretion is always advised. The dark nature of the show is not suitable for young ears or those who are sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's get it. Welcome back, guys. Uh, a few weeks back, I got a special request on my Instagram page for me to cover the Adam Walsh case from a at Matt triple M three. I got to say, though, the story I'm about to tell you is most definitely still impacting the way cases everywhere in the United States are handled when it comes to missing or abducted children. Today's case is pretty monumental in true crime. But if you aren't familiar with the name Adam Walsh, you might be more familiar with his dad, the host of America's Most Wanted, a weekly show featuring the country's biggest assholes, the most wanted criminals. And if I'm being totally honest with you, John Walsh is a personal hero of mine, and I actually remember watching his show every single Saturday night at 9pm with my dad, just after a whole ass hour of cops, which is another favorite of mine. And I actually remember when my own dad, shout out to my dad, you know, for like having me, but he told me that John Walsh was doing all of this because a bad man once came and took his son and they never saw him alive ever again. So this was the case that really started it all with stranger danger and like helicopter parenting or pretty much parental paranoia in general it was something that gave the parents of the 1980s their like first realistic slap to the face that fucked up shit happens to good people everywhere, every day, and sometimes for no good reason at all. And still, even if you don't know who John Walsh is, no worries, that's okay because you're gonna learn all about how this man turned a tragedy into a motherfucking real life mission to stop it from happening to anyone else. In the first part of the story, I'm going to tell you the story of Adam as we all mostly know it. And then for part two, I'm going to get a bit more into the controversial side of the story. I'm going to put my thing down, I'm going to flip it, and then I'm going to reverse it, basically. So just a heads up, by the end of this two-parter, you're still going to be saying, hmm, what the fuck really happened here? There's going to be trigger warnings, obviously, for a terrible death of a child, but also some sexual assault as well. I will absolutely give another heads up when it gets closer to the cringy shit. When we go way back to 1971, when John Walsh and his wife Reva actually get married, John would go on to receive a bachelor's degree in history, actually, graduating from the University of Buffalo up in New York, where he's originally from. In 1973, John had landed a job in the hotel industry, actually. I'm not sure what a degree in history has to do with a hotel, but... It's cool either way. I believe his job included the design of luxury hotels, which took him and Ravey down to South Florida to a city called Hollywood. Yeah, Florida has a city called Hollywood too, not just California. I'm not sure of his job really. I don't know if it consisted of construction or like architecture, but it really doesn't matter because he literally ended up dropping it all after their first son goes missing. Now, Adam John Walsh was John and Ravey's first son together. He was born on November 14th, 1974, and John often describes his son as like the absolute perfect child, while Revae described him as shy and sweet. It was a Monday afternoon on July 27th of 1981, pretty sure it was a hot as balls summer day in Hollywood, Florida, and six-year-old Adam Walsh and his mom Revae head to the North Hollywood Shopping Mall to look at the lamp department at the mall's Sears department store. And... You know how some department stores have the video games out for display for the kids to check out and then like obviously beg and raise hell for their parents to then buy? Well, the Atari 2600 had just been released and it was, it was $199 even then in 1981 and it only came with Pac-Man, you guys. What the fuck is that? Can you imagine your child now asking you to buy a game system that only comes with Pac-Man for $199? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, Atari. Anyways, of course, the norm back then was to sort of let your kids hang out in the toy or the video game section while the parent did their business in the lamp department or pretty much, you know, whatever they had to do. Rave said it was normal of them to do this as they'd been to that store at least 100 times or so. And not that she left him 100 times, but I guess that she felt comfortable doing it every so often as he got a little bit older. And remember, it's 1981, so child abductions by strangers? weren't really a concern for parents, yet. But Reve says, I'm going over here to the lamp department, and he said, okay mommy, I know where that is. So it turns out that they don't have the lamps that she's looking for, or the ones that John asked her to look for, probably for the hotels or something, but she heads back over the three aisles towards the video games, and when Reve returns to the console that she last saw Adam at, playing with a few other children, She walked over to find no children playing at the system anymore. So she starts walking around aisle to aisle looking for Adam and she finally ends up going to a couple store clerks with a picture of Adam that she had had in her purse and starts asking them if they'd seen this little boy anywhere. They all said no but began paging for him to come to the service desk over their store's intercom system. It actually turned out that John's mom, so Ravey's mother-in-law, also was in the same Sears store that day, and she and Revae had actually ended up running into each other while looking for Adam. When they both realized he was still missing and not with the other, the police were finally called, reportedly 90 minutes after they had last seen him. Ravey's time estimate was that she returned to the game section about 12.15ish, though she wasn't wearing her watch, and that the call came into to police about 1.55pm. John has also described on an interview with Larry King that he had also received a call from Reve and she said that no one was helping her look for Adam even though the police station had already been called and was said to actually be just right across the street from this shopping mall. So John said he rushed down to the mall with Reve straight from work and that's when all hell broke loose I guess. It just so happened that Sears had recently employed a new security guard and she was a 16 year old girl who actually eventually comes forward after the concern for the missing child grew rather large she tells investigators that he was possibly in this group of kids a couple different ages that she asked to leave the store because they were roughhousing near the electronics and she now believes that adam might have actually been included in that small group of children assuming that they were all together at the time when she asked them to leave and with her being 16 and new on the job Possibly not realizing the seriousness of the situation, she didn't come forward with this information abruptly, as she probably thought she was going to get in trouble. So keep in mind, there's no security cameras, no missing children database. This is actually the first missing children's case for Hollywood PD in a long time. There isn't any Amber Alert system because it's 1981. There's not even a sex offender registry. So this is where all that shit's going to change. Since stranger abductions as well weren't happening enough for police to consider them a true avenue of possibilities, the focus remained in the area, hoping that Adam just wandered off. We've searched and searched for Adam, and we haven't found a body, so everybody thinks he's alive. We do too, and uh, we feel that since you people have searched so hard, the best thing we can do now is get these flyers in everybody's hands because the police are fr- so frustrated nobody's really come forth and the clues that we have really we haven't been haven't come up with anything substantial john and revay had actually left their vehicle within the store's parking lot where she parked it just in case adam would come across it outside the sears they posted a huge note on it adam stay in your car mommy and daddy are looking for you stay in the car love mommy They put up posters all over the area with two different pictures of Adam and a clear reward of $5,000 right off the top, but it eventually grew to $120,000 within just a couple weeks of searching nonstop. John and Revae were said to be taking like every single possible opportunity to continue telling the public that their search wasn't over yet and that they still needed help. John has said many, many times that this investigation has been absolutely fucked pretty much from the very beginning of the disappearance, and even more so when the investigation led on. So, for two of what I'm sure the most stressful weeks of his life ever, John said he hounded the media, he hounded FBI, and local police to get more press to be done on Adam's possible abduction. He finally gets a friend of his to get him a spot on national television up in New York. So, he quickly passes a polygraph and him and Rave fly up to New York and make a televised plea on August 10th for Adam's safe return. They also promised no repercussions to the person that had Adam. If we'd appreciate anyone with any information about him or have seen him or think they saw him to please call the Hollywood police. I am prepared to offer a substantial reward for any information leading to the safe uh, uh, giving up of Adam and to any of the people out there that might be holding Adam, we are prepared to negotiate ourselves with them for a safe release of Adam. Now, this is where shit starts to get a little bit dark. About 6.45 p.m. on August 10th, 16 days after Adam went missing, two fishermen find what appears to be the severed head of a child right there in a roadside drainage canal in Indian River Canyon, Florida, which is a little under three hours away from Hollywood where Adam went missing. The actual roads were said to be Highway 60 in Yeehaw Junction, also described near Vero Beach. Can you imagine? These two fishermen are out there just having a grand old day, probably about to head out for the night, and they have that probably insane moment of realization like, oh shit, that's, that's a head. They apparently thought it was a doll at first. So Vero police sent divers in the canal to search for more of the remains while also contacting the Hollywood police as it may be the six-year-old boy that they have been looking for just a couple hours away. Hollywood Police Department also contacts John shortly before he actually goes on television to make his plea for Adam, actually. And apparently he decided to go on with the taping because he was hoping that the head that they found in the area was not going to be Adam's. So he didn't even tell Reve actually. That is, until the following day on August 11th after... A personal friend of theirs was asked to travel up and identify the head for the Walshes as they were out of town up in New York. This family friend does then go to the morgue where he does believe it is in fact that of six-year-old Adam. It was then said to be double-checked by a comparison of his dental records, citing a single filling that was located on the bottom left molar. John later explained to Larry King on his talk show that John literally then went ape shit when they called him back with the news, and he just destroyed the entire fucking hotel room. After he was able to be stopped or like calm down and you know get his shit back together to somewhat, I guess, a reasonable degree. I mean, goddamn, can you imagine? He told Larry King he then had to make the absolute hardest fucking call known to man and would have to tell Ravey that. They did find Adam and he wouldn't be coming home. We think we gave it our best, our best effort to bring him back. I just wish it had a happier ending. Adam evidently was too good for this world, he was much greater than this world. I don't know who would do this to a six year old child. I can't conceive of it. It's just, it's beyond the realm of of reality. The county's coroner had ruled the official cause of Adam's death likely to be asphyxiation, though since his body wasn't recovered and the coroner estimated that the head was likely in the water for up to two weeks, making pretty much any other information pretty hard to deliver. There was a memorial held for Adam, and I've read that literally thousands of people had stopped by to pay their respects, some even being, you know, complete strangers, just distraught over what was said to have happened. I even heard that one woman actually took it upon herself to befriend the Walshes, and she claimed to raise a bunch of money in Adam's name, but then she actually had to come out and explain that it was all a lie, and it was just to get closer to the grieving family. Now, I have no idea of this logic, but, you know, some of the weirdest fucking people come out of the woodworks when shit like this happens, and it's clear as the investigation moves on. After the family was found to have passed their polygraphs and cleared of any suspicion, John would get another huge blow when it would come out through police interviews that Reve had been previously having an affair with a good friend of John's, and it also turned out that this man was actually living within the Walsh home straight up until a few weeks before Adam's disappearance. Police were then more or less focusing on this particular guy, as there wasn't much else to go off of, and he also just so happened to be one of the only other people to actually know, besides John, that Revae and Adam would be going to that Sears that Monday. And that was because Revae and this man had actually had breakfast together the same morning after John left for work, but before she and Adam headed to the mall. So at the time, this seems to be like the best lead investigators have, but this man actually ends up passing two consecutive polygraph tests, and even John Walsh has since been quoted in saying that even he doesn't believe this man would have been able to hurt Adam the way that he was. And it's hard to believe, honestly, but this actually didn't break the Walshes. If anything, losing Adam seems to have actually made them stronger in the long run, and they're even still married today. To be clear, though, John didn't know about this four year long affair until after adam was found to be murdered the reasons for this man moving out of the walsh home shortly before adam went missing seemed more like Reve might have actually just called it quits because she wanted to have another baby with john and so like obviously this guy isn't benefiting from living there anymore and he bounced out you know so the case somewhat goes cold after most of the other leads from possible witnesses at the mall that day didn't end up panning out apparently. But it seems as though the detectives in this case have since been pretty heavily criticized ever since for not looking into some of these particular witness accounts further. And we'll get into this in part two actually. But like I said, John and Revee were actually talking about having their second child in the weeks before Adam's abduction and... Just about a year or so after he was killed, John and Revae would happily welcome their first daughter, Megan, who John and Revae said Adam would have just totally loved to be around and actually made them miss him even more in a way. I can totally understand that too. It would be, it would be hard every single fucking day, you guys. But now John and Revae sort of have something to fight for because they felt their chances of finding Adam quicker were hindered by a lack of resources available to them they had trouble getting media attention, the cops weren't really equipped with training or resources themselves to really cover enough ground without using public volunteers, which is sometimes unsafe. They also felt that the store didn't do enough to help keep Adam safer. So John and Revae quite literally begin a missing children's resource center right out of their fucking home, which actually ends up being called the Adam Walsh Resource Center and it aimed at helping other parents who were now looking for their missing children and not getting enough help too. With no movement in catching Adam's killer, John and Revae would actually turn around and go after the Sears department store for liability damages when it came to their lax security processes, which they felt helped Adam to be taken from the store more easily, and even more so that they didn't do more to help when they became aware of his disappearance. Revae would complain that they never searched the parking lot and they never locked the doors and basically didn't help her very much besides paging his name a couple times while she frantically searched all over the aisles. Sears is not going to back down so easily though because they actually went out and subpoenaed the man that she'd been sleeping with and he allegedly made claims in regards to John and Revae's drug use that he witnessed while he was living in their home. They were alleged to have been frequent users of weed and coke, which in reality, hey. It's the fucking 80s in South Florida, and he works for a bougie-ass luxury hotel chain. I mean, I wasn't there, but it kind of seems like the time and the place for that stereotype. I mean, that's Cocaine Cowboy Central, hello? And I just want to point out that even if John and Revae did enjoy a bit of booger sugar or a stupid doobie here or there, that doesn't fucking mean that they deserved what happened to them. Also, this shit happens even today. Kids get abducted from stores, and I'm slightly on the side that though Sears should have had better protocols when dealing with clearly minors, Revae also shouldn't have left Adam in that aisle alone. I mean, no offense to the Walshes at all. It's a sad fact, but a hard truth, and I do give her the benefit of the doubt that it was the completely normal thing to do at the time. Sadly, though, it doesn't change the fact that she might very well have never lost Adam had she just, you know waited for a few minutes with him while he checked out the game, or they came back around when she was done looking at the lamps. But hindsight is twenty twenty. Anyways, if they wanted to continue their lawsuit against Sears, they would have to battle those drug claims as well in open court. So they were said to have dropped the suit in November of 1983, and make of that what you will. I, I'll link the newspaper articles to them if you, for some reason, think I'm pulling this out of my ass. Um, but I'm supposing that John and Revae just really didn't need to be judged by the public at that particular time in their lives because something pretty big was in the works. On October 10th of 1983, a made-for-television movie called Adam sharing their tragic story with everyone, but also featuring a segment with John and Revee at the very end of the movie that would showcase 55 currently missing children at that time. Its first airing had more than 38 million viewers, and the show even implemented a hotline for those interested in giving tips on any of the missing children, and it actually ended up finding 13 of the 55 children shown in its first broadcast, including fucking Busybone from Bone thugs and harmony His babysitter actually recognized his photo on the first 1983 airing of the movie Adam, and come to find out, Busybone's own stepdad had actually kidnapped him and his two sisters, when he was just four years old. He was then told that his mother had died and was taken from home to home after that. He was only reunited with his mother because she never really stopped looking for him and sent his picture to the Walshes to be on the show. And like, bitch, that gives me goosebumps. He later comes on John's show, America's Most Wanted, and performs a song that he dedicated to John and Adam, and also thanked John for having the platform that saved him. He also took a moment and encouraged other children of abuse to come forward. I mean, 13 of those 55 children were found. Even if it was just one child found, it would have been enough. But this is quite honestly what starts John's career as like the face of catching bad guys, essentially. There's good news left and right. Finally, there's a break in Adam's case shortly after airing this movie a man named Otis Toole somehow gets implemented into the murder of Adam from his loudmouth boyfriend, Henry Lee Lucas, otherwise known as the confession killer, to those of you with Netflix. Otis first officially confessed to the murder on October 21st, 1983, conveniently from his Jacksonville, Florida jail cell, just 11 days after the movie Adam was nationally televised. So he was in jail for arson when he then gets interviewed by police about some claims that his bae, Henry, is making from down in Texas. Prior to Adam's movie being aired, Otis actually denied any involvement in Adam's murder. But after the movie, Otis decides, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Henry's not lying. I, t- I totally killed that kid. So obviously, the police got to send investigators again from Hollywood about 300 miles north up to Jacksonville to interview this butt plug named Otis Tool. Now, heads up, because Otis is a real fucking dickhead to Adam. When detectives go to interview him, Otis explains that he had managed to lure little Adam away from the video games and all the way to his car that was parked outside the mall that day. He says he was promising Adam toys and candy, but his true intentions were actually to take him and raise him as his own son. So it sort of seems like somewhere between point A and point B Otis clearly skipped a bunch of steps and obviously wouldn't have made a very good parent anyways because he says after they start driving north on I-95 to where Otis is living with his mom, shocker, he says Adam started freaking out and crying for his mom so clearly it wasn't going to be easy to brainwash this child and apparently he gives up the parenting gig right then and there. Otis confesses that he then decided to punch Adam in his little six-year-old face Which if you're not half brain dead, you might know that that just makes kids cry a lot harder. But Otis then quite disgustingly describes how he just sort of beat Adam unconscious right there in the car while they're driving until Otis sort of just assumed that Adam was dead. And this just keeps getting worse, people. So Otis next says he pulled off the main highway onto a Florida turnpike that took him to a service road where he then rapes Adam's body for a couple hours before realizing he's still alive. So he decides to strangle Adam using the car's seatbelt. Okay, I kind of call bullshit. How do you have sex with someone for two hours before you realize they're dead? That's, (laughs) oh, are you Jeffrey Dahmer too? I mean, come on. But Tool goes on to describe that he had used a machete that he had within the car to pull Adam to the trunk area where it then took him about five or six swings to actually remove his head. He then says he buried Adam's body in a shallow grave in the area where he later ended up showing his bae, Henry Lucas. He also says he stupidly forgot that Adam's head, which he says he left in the back of the car, just sort of rolling around for a few days. And that when he finally remembered, oh, yeah, I have that kid's head in the back of my car. Fuck, I should totally drive two hours back south and ditch that shit off the highway. I mean, like gas money, shit, apparently, I guess. Investigators are like, great. Grand, wonderful. We have the fucking dude. So they take him from Jacksonville back down to Vero Beach so Otis can show investigators if he really knows where the body is. And he ends up actually leading them to a service road not too far from the area where Adam's head was recovered, which I believe wasn't specifically said until much, much later down the line. So it's a rather good guess, I guess, for Otis, I think. But investigators are really unable to find any other remains of the body where Otis said it was. So police did apparently find Otis's Cadillac, where he claimed to have committed the crime, and they apparently tested it for the presence of blood, which they found to have been positive, even back in 1983. They didn't have DNA testing, but they did apparently have luminol testing. So investigators are moving along with the case when Otis decides to be a total fucking butt plug and recant the entire fucking thing and because Adam's body is still not found, the investigators are sort of, like, forced to set the case aside once again until Otis, I guess, decides to confess some more. Which he does because he does it all the time. He confesses, he recants, he confesses, he recants. So, I mean, like, who the fuck is this guy anyways? Well, he's a supposed serial killer, but also a very flamboyant, Bum basically who was said to have drifted across the southern United States with his very infamous lover Henry Lee Lucas. And together Lucas and Tool made hundreds of confessions, like like over 500 each or some shit over a span of 20 years. Sometimes implicating themselves into satanic crimes with a cult they called the Hands of Death, which was later found to be a total crock of shit actually. In reality, it seems like these motherfuckers are really just doing whatever they could to get their schmoney. The crime that landed Otis in jail when he started this whole confession of Adam's murder was actually the murder of a man named George Sonnenberg. Otis confesses that after he and this George bump uglies, they get into a fight where Otis goes outside of the home and locks George inside his own home. Then Otis proceeds to light the house on fire and jerks off while watching it burn. So this George was actually said to have died a few days later from his injuries, so Otis would end up confessing to murder and would remain in jail until his trial the following year. It's while he's waiting for his trial when his boyfriend Henry is arrested over in Texas and begins implicating Otis into the murder of Adam Walsh, saying that Otis showed him where the body was. But a dude named Hugh Ainsworth actually believes that Otis and Henry really only confessed to all these crimes to a bunch of different cops that needed to close these old cases throughout the southeast. He even did the math on some of this shit, finding that they would have had to have driven over, like, 310 miles, that's 600 kilometers, every single fucking day, on top of eating, sleeping, and killing, to commit all the murders that they confessed to. Otis was only ever really confirmed to have killed six people, not that it isn't, like, enough or anything, but it's nothing like what they were trying to say. So, during his second official confession to the murder of Adam, I believe Otis knew that he had to come up with a better reason as to why the body wasn't found. So, he switches his story from burying Adam's body into a shallow grave, where he showed Henry, blah, 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 to taking it with him all the way back up to his mom's place in Jacksonville, where he now claims that he burned it within an old refrigerator and then dumped the ashes over at the local landfill. So, they're probably not going to get shit back from those remains. So now, police got to go up to Jacksonville and search the place he said to have burned the body, and investigators can't find this refrigerator, but they do apparently find a machete, and some articles of clothing, interestingly, that were said to maybe be Adams. They were a pair of green shorts and one yellow flip-flop sandal. Like, I personally have yet to see a picture of either one of these items, and I, I did read somewhere, actually, in my list of resources there that... The sandal wasn't even the correct size, so I really don't know how much credibility I'm going to give this, besides the fact that John actually does bring it up later on TV, which I will get to. But guess what? Otis again decides he's going to waste everyone's fucking time and recant the confession again. Man, this fucking wishy-washy asshole. By this time, the movie Adam had been aired two more times nationally, Once in the spring of 1984 and another in the spring of 1985, the second broadcast recovered 19 more children, while the movie's third airing recovered five more kids. Also, by 1984, John and Revae had managed to co-found what's known today as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And it was basically started when the issue was raised that entire databases are dedicated to stolen cars and stolen guns, And there's weather alert systems, but there's not the same type of databases or alert systems in regards to missing children. So now the NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Children, is known for assisting local law enforcement in cases of missing children up to the age of 20. And they also act as a resource for parents who are searching for their missing children. And they really push public awareness to prevent future cases of abduction and abuse. By 1987, John and Rave are blessed yet again with a second boy in their family, and they named him Callahan. Isn't that the dopest name? I love it. Callahan Walsh. So they have their little girl, they have their little boy, and now they're working really hard to get other people's kids back too. So with the establishment of new databases of sex offenders, as well as implementing new alert systems for local law enforcement, John and Revae Walsh actually start changing the odds of other parents getting their children back quicker in the event that they're ever taken or that they just wander off this seems like a really nice positive place to cut it for part two so the next time on the adam walsh case we will finally see that adam's case does become officially closed and we'll also learn why there's still a little bit of controversy out there about who really might have killed him though and i thought to leave you with would be you know those little leashes for your guys' kids aren't so fucking bad right now are they I mean, I'm not even kidding. Before being a parent, I was like, dude, fuck those things. I'm never going to make my child wear one of those. I'm just going to make them, you know, listen to me. And then I actually had kids and I realized that, you know, those are not only great for teaching them independence, but also great at keeping them safe. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Quickly, I have a couple shout outs this week. I have a big thanks to Lynn Olive for joining the club and supporting the Patreon. And Lynn actually makes the most adorable handmade jewelry online. I would definitely check out her super cute line of jewelry and decor, which which also supports her strive in autism awareness, which is neat. So her website is The Abstract Olive, and she has the cutest little cactus earrings you've ever seen. Definitely hop on the Patreon if you're interested in getting new episodes a whole week early on top of monthly episodes. We just got done covering the highly controversial case of Darlie Routier, so check that out if you're fiending for more killer content. And another shout out to Turpinette on the Apple reviews. Thank you so much for your five-star review. I really appreciate the hometown love, my girl. You guys can cash me back here in two weeks to totally fuck with your head on the second half of the Adam Walsh case. The, that was the tea. I hope you guys enjoyed my rendition of the story, and if so, please tell all your creepy-ass friends about it. You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can find me slanging those memes on Instagram at Queen. Check them out if you need some laughs after all this dark shit. If you'd like to support the podcast, check out patreon.com slash ginger the Queen. As always, remember to lock your fucking doors. Alright, you guys. Bye.